Good evening, everyone. You'll be seeing this tonight, which is really nothing serious. I just kind of tweaked it, so I put this little gripper on it, and it feels better. But I don't want anyone to think that I am seriously impaired. So tonight we have our class. Next week is September 12th. So for you local folks, it doesn't make any difference, those who are picking it up on the internet, but next week is September 12th and is Swami's anniversary of discipleship. So same place, same time, but different experience. Then the following week, one more class on this book, and then I take my hiatus, actually probably till the end of the year, because I'll be gone for uh, several weeks, and then when I come back, we get into Christmas. So it's amazing how time flies, whether you're having fun or not. <laughs> okay. So, any questions or comments left over from anything else? So then, number 258. Loyalty, the Master often said, is the greatest law of God, and treachery is before God the greatest sin. This is something that Swami talked about on so many different occasions. Um, just this, um, this concept of treachery. I, I, it's not something I've had to think about that much or you know, put my mind to that much, but I'm very impressed by how strongly Swamiji always carried on this point of view, the same as Masters. He even talked about back in the time when he was the King Henry I, in the time of William, that he talks about one of the things that Henry did that was very controversial was that this lord who had pledged loyalty to actually his brother, who was the king at that time, who just fomented this rebellion in this town, and it was extremely brutal and bloody and awful. And Henry took that man up to the top of a high tower and pushed him off the tower. And it's one of the few examples when Henry actually, it might even be virtually the only one, when he executed someone. But Swami, interestingly, in, in the book, uh, two, two Souls, Four Lives, when they're talking, not Swami, but in the book is talking. And there's just a lot, he talks a lot about that experience. I, I, in another place, too, I read Swami where he was talking about it. But just, you know, what pushed him that far? Of course, it wasn't odd for the times, but uh, even the, the method of execution wasn't that odd for the times. But uh, still, Swami contemplated it. But it was the treachery of it having pledged loyalty and then going in another direction. It was just one of those things that's not allowed. Um, the, uh, in another context, in the guidelines for being part of the Savika order at Ananda, one of the things that's talked about is, is negativity. And negativity he's described is not necessarily of dis with disagreeing or complaining but when you take your complaints to, to people who can't do anything about them and then you just foment um, a rebellion or negativity or aversion and, and just stir up trouble without ever involving those who might actually be able to resolve the issue and he, it's, it's very strongly written in there because that's when you're beginning to move into disloyalty, let's call it, instead of actual treachery, but just disloyalty. I know um, Swami criticized me in one context because um, my inclination 
uh, has been, I wish I could give you the astrological explanation, but I have one of the hot planets really close. So my first response can be kind of hot. And then I, after I've said it, I can think more reason, but there's often a hot response. But as a result, and sometimes it doesn't go away, um, I often haven't spoken up when I should. And Swami actually said these words, when you have such a strong feeling and don't express it, he said, it borders on treachery. That was really, it was a very strong statement because there you are holding this opinion. You're not changing your opinion, but you don't have the courage to stand up and say it either. In other words, you're not bringing the problem to those who could respond to it. And to just hold that point of view, just hold a contrary point of view, um, it borders on, that was the phrase he used. But it was, it was an interesting comment. I mean, I thought I was being good because I was not expressing um, my emotions. But he said, even if you're emotional, he said, you, you have to cooperate. And merely to suppress is not to cooperate. Now, of course, there's more ideal ways to do it, but it was, it was interesting. I read that only just in my last going through the files, and I was struck, wow, that is a really interesting point. Because sometimes, because he was right, he was telling me the truth, you know, I haven't known how to say what I wanted to say, so I just didn't say it and not trust. It's also, it's a form, you see, of not trusting truth. This is something he often said to me. You, don't, you know, truth, truth, truth has a lot of power on its own. It doesn't really entirely depend on you. <laughs> It'll work itself out. It's not just entire, in your hands to make sure it has its way. So that's also what you're not trusting when you don't speak up. Yeah, interesting. But it, um, you know, loyalty is the the greatest law of God and treachery is before God the greatest sin my 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 yeah we're thinking about no well insincer- is insincerity a form of treachery I think it's it, it overstates it treachery has to go a lot farther treachery has to be deliberate that's why he even said to me, merely not to express your opinion borders, that was the word he used, rather than is, because treachery has to have a conscious element to it. Um, one of the uh, people who had been part of Ananda and Swami had given a lot of energy to subsequently became quite in the middle of the Bertolucci lawsuit and did a tremendous amount to store up trouble. Stir up trouble. Um, and then later I said to Swamiji, I said, if she repented, it was a woman, if she repented, would you take her back? And uh, he said, yes, but now that I know what she's capable of, he said, I would, I would treat her differently, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. If, if she sincerely wanted to try, but knowing that is her weakness, he would, he would not put her in a position where she could exercise that weakness again. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting one to contemplate. Let me see if I have anything more else more useful to say about it. You know, our own point of view isn't always the most important point of view. To go the opposite of what I was saying about um, not expressing yourself, sometimes it's just more important to go along with what everyone else thinks is a good idea if there's no real principle at stake. You know, just to be loyal to the flow of energy, loyal to the program, I remember there was a man who was just always, whatever, whichever direction we were swimming, he was determined to swim the other way. It was just absolutely chronic. 
And I just, said to, I just said to him one day, you know, why don't you just get with the program? I mean, I never say that. Why don't you just get with the program? Why don't you just, like, just for the exercise of it, just do what everyone else is doing. Just try it. See how it feels, you know. See if you can be supportive instead of always feeling you have to be individual. That is by no means treachery. But there's a kind of... Um, when you're trying to make something happen, which we're always trying to make happen at Ananda, people who are just kind of solidly, you know, in favor of helping it, um, there's a, there's a, it's a great, it's a great virtue. That's the opposite side of it. It's a great virtue to see people who are just there trying to help it make, make it happen and not always needing to weigh and measure and decide for themselves what's, you know, what tiny part of it is okay and what tiny part of it isn't okay and just go with the program sometimes. That's not a virtue I've had, but I've come to appreciate it. You know, I've been much more on the other side so I can speak as the, as the um, new converted. There you have it. <laughs> okay. Yes, Saranya. I'm not sure if I'm getting all of what you're saying because it feels a little bit like Catch-22. Oh, if I, a person, it might be. If a person has strong feelings in general, you know, and, and a lot of opinions. And so something comes along and that person has strong feelings or opinions about it and has expressed it perhaps and then decides to go along with whatever the program is but still has those feelings. Does that mean the person is bordering on treachery? You know, would, no, he, would, he, he said that to me when I felt the strong feelings and never spoke when I just seethed in silence and never gave anyone, never gave myself the chance to get a broader perspective and never gave anyone else the chance to respond to my point of view. So I was always a little um, bubble of, neg- of, of criticism, you know, just kind of moving through the middle of everything was this, this energy-draining bubble of negativ- negativity. And that was what he was talking about. When you've expressed yourself, and people have another opinion and they have the responsibility, that's called a test <laughs> of just... And it's the perfect answer is the one Kirtani gave me once in, when I was in that situation. It's not only what God wants, it's who he wants it from. And that actually completely transformed my way of thinking about this um, because... If it's someone else's responsibility and that's how they see it and you have done your part to offer them another point of view but they've rejected it, it's, it's their responsibility and their destiny to work it out. If it was yours, it would be your responsibility. And that, that finally took it off of who's right and who's wrong, whether this is good or whether this is bad, even whether this is catastrophic and I need to save it. It's like it's their responsibility, it's their karma to play it out. And so let me just support them as they work out their karma. That's a way of being a friend too. You can't, you don't only, you're not only a friend just by interfering and making it work your way. Sometimes you're a friend by just letting them have their lesson. What else can you do? When a woman friend of mine made a disastrous marriage choice and I, before I said to her, honey, I don't think this one is a good idea. And then later it was disastrous and she said, why didn't you tell me? I said, you know, I did. <laughs> but once she made the decision, I didn't sit there and carp. I just, I stayed, stuck with her all the way through, to, you know, the middle and the end of it. 
because I'd done my part, but this was her, her karma. I mean, that's, those are good friends when, you, when you'll do that. And we have to be friends like that with each other. It's not been my strong suit. I, I say that frankly. I've, it's something I've had to learn. I've just been too fixed in my own opinions and too emotional about them. But I see it differently now that it's... Everyone has their part and you have to, you have to support people in doing their part. And the facts are not always as important as that. So that's how you work it out. You're not still holding on like everyone is wrong. You just can see, well, this is how it's going to go. We'll just go. Swami Kriyananda, that's how he did it. I mean, the, the classic huge, 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 huge moment was when we hired a lawyer to defend us in the Bertolucci lawsuit, which I mentioned, which was the character assassination sexual misconduct lawsuit. We hired a lawyer when Swami was out of the country. Swami met him. He said, this man is not going to work for us. And we were committed. We were committed financially. We were committed intellectually. We were just committed. And he tried to tell us that this man was a disaster. And we didn't listen. And he said, all right. And he was a disaster. Total. You know, one of the main reasons why we lost. There were other reasons too. But Swami just thought, you know, he's just like, you can only, you, he said his piece, he made it clear, but everyone else's, the destiny of the whole situation was different than his point of view. But he never, I'm not sure he ever referred to it, except till afterwards. I don't think he said it as we went along. I told you, I told you, I told you. I mean, once we were there, we just went through it and he made the best of it and there wasn't much best to make. But that was quite something, you know, when so much was at stake, especially for him personally. But he still, he, 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 he tried, and then we wouldn't hear it, and just figured, that's your decision. Yeah, wow. Especially in a case where he was accused of being a, a ruthless dictator. That was the irony of it, absolute irony. He also just thought, well, Divine Mother has a plan, you see. So they're going to do something, but Divine Mother has a plan because it's their responsibility and let them do it. What, I, what also happens is, you may be entirely right if this is your objective, but somebody else may have a slightly different objective that's not obvious at the beginning. Maybe this one is all about certain people and their thing over here and yours is about the project or theirs is about the project and yours is about the people. And so it's not like either of you are wrong, you're just working for different objectives. And this one's going to bring one result, and this is going to bring another. That's why it depends on who has the destiny to do it, whose karma it is. Make sense? Yeah, it's very, very important, especially in the context of our community. We work with cooperative obedience. So somebody in authority makes a suggestion, but the cooperative part has to come from the person who thinks it is or isn't a good idea. And you can't object if you're not doing your part. Because we don't have a system here where I get to say or someone else gets to say, this is what we do. I get to suggest it. And then you get to cooperate or not. But your part of it has to be active. So, and that's what Swami was upset with me about. Is it just, you know, you, you can't, you either have to get over it or you have to do something about it. You can't just hang out in the icky middle. <laughs> he got my attention. Yeah. All right. I loved uh, uh, Sister G- a master wrote a note to Sister Gyanamata that said, because when he would go on his tours, he, would, he left her in charge of Mount Washington when he was traveling around the, the country. And he said that it, uh, 
I don't know exactly what word he used, but the word was it, it gives me a great sense of security to have you there at Mount Washington. Because he used the word, because you're a peacemaker. And what I thought about that meant later was, you know, the Jesus says at the end of his life that uh, none of the sheep were lost, except the one that chose to be lost, meaning the Ju- Judas. But it was like Jesus was reporting back to God, saying none of the sheep were lost. And by that he meant none of the disciples. You know, I, I took care of everybody I was supposed to take care of because that's his objective. You know, his objective is not any of this. His objective is that these disciples, that he, that he keeps them, holds them on the path. And it's just absolutely, that's, that's their job. And so, and even in the context of Ananda, we have to keep, keep sight of that. The, real, the people are Ananda. Not the projects, not the buildings, not the events, nothing. It's the people. So every decision has to be made in the context of the people. And it's easy to lose that. And, and, and rationalize it. Like Shivani said to Swamiji once, because she was working in the garden and it was very hard work and very hot in the hot summers and she didn't always get the kind of cooperation she wanted. And so she said something to Swami, because, you know, they're working with crops, they've been growing them. If the squash is not harvested now, it's, we're not going to be able to harvest it kind of thing. It's not like whether or not Krishna wants us to harvest the squash, we have to harvest the squash. So she said to Swami, people may be more important than things, but aren't some things more important than, than people's egos? That was her question. And Swami said, yes, Shivani, that's true. He said, but you better make very sure you can tell the difference before you act on it. <laughs> and that's sort of, that's always been the, okay, just make sure you can tell the difference. Because sometimes you have to push. It's appropriate to challenge people. And sometimes you just have to not lose the sheep. You may remember in my book about Swami, I had a story exactly about that because I had two different women work for me at one point. And one of them, I mean sequentially, and one of them was just impossible. Well, they were both impossible, but the first one that was impossible, she was just impossible. She was like moody and just, she just, she struggled and continue, has continued to struggle. So she struggled. But uh, I said to Swamiji, if I set any like natural appropriate standards for her, I think she'll just freak out and run away. He said, don't do it. He said, whatever you do, don't lose her. Those were his words. Whatever you do, don't lose her. I said, okay. So I managed to create a situation. She was very talented, so when she did act, she added. But I always managed to give her assignments that were not essential, but that were extra. You know, like whatever it might be, like make the altar, for example. And if she didn't, if she didn't do it, then you could still manage. But if she did do it, it would be extra beautiful. But nothing would crash if she didn't act. And so we, we managed that for quite, quite nicely. And she contributed nicely as she could. A few years, not a few years later, but a year or two later, I had someone else working for me. It was also impossible. And um, I asked Swami again the same question. You know, what should I do? He said, his words were, she's, she's still making up her mind whether she wants to be on the path or not. He said, challenge her. She has to decide. So I, So for her, I just put out appropriate standards. I didn't make new rules to fit her. I just asked her to do. And at that time she rose to them. Eventually she didn't. She couldn't hold it. 
but it was it was like completely different answers where you would that you can't you can't make rules you can't say this is what people have to do you have to look at the person and save them for god because at the end nobody'll care and i mean at the end nothing will matter except whether or not that person spiritually progressed and just as a master says here that loyalty is the most important law i mean the primary loyalty is what the guru has to the disciple and that is the loyalty with when swamiji was living um, he, a lot of us would we would how do you say it you know we would we would often he would often ask one of us to deliver an unwelcome message so that the person could then go to him and complain about the person who delivered the message um but then swamiji could always would never was never the one who seemed um heartless so you know we were just regularly sacrificed um to to preserve his relationship we would sac- who, who i mean this was then we actually did somewhat consciously it was like you know who's who's the one who who's the one who's the least important in this person's spiritual life that they can become the object of their anger and it'll be fine then it wasn't manipulative it was really just consideration you know who has the how can we help this person what's the best way to help them and at all costs we would preserve swami's relationship if we possibly could even if the message we were delivering is the message that he himself wanted them to hear but not from him you know and so we we did hearing that you know how carefully swami thought these things through we teaches tells us too it's not um as swami said in a certain other context when i said or or david said back you know i don't want to think politically he said well, i'm not thinking politically i'm just talking about human nature and so we don't want to think when we actually consider human nature that there's something wrong with that we have to look at this person and ask what works for them and it was very interesting in in the early years of the community when we were relatively small you know there was always somebody even if somebody just was totally way out of tune just off on some strange there was always somebody who was still atta- still connected to them you know there's just somebody would have a friendship and then that person would hold the friendship as long as possible even though the person was completely out of sorts with 90% of everybody else but if you were the one who could still maintain a positive link you would hold it as long as you possibly could in the hope that they would turn back around you know it was it was true loyalty it was really beautiful none of it it wasn't as calculated as it might sound here but it was just the way we responded but when i looked back at it i sort of saw how it all worked and even sometimes swami asking someone else to deliver would you tell someone so and so okay sir they're not going to like it very much i know he said <laughs> you know just i said okay i'll do, i'll do it i don't mind i'll be the one sometimes uh it wasn't possible you know just couldn't be done do you have something oh you're just passing that back okay any questions or comments about any of that number 259 during my early days with the master he constantly urged me get devotion get devotion remember the words of jesus lord thou hast hid these things from the prudent and the wise and has revealed them unto babes one day he bought a few toys i wonder in retrospect if it wasn't for my benefit 
I never saw him with them again. We were seated around the little kitchen table at his desert retreat. Just think how casual and intimate that situation was. He's sitting with Master around the little, the little kitchen table at his desert retreat. Swami reveals, as I've mentioned through this book, how much really intimate time he had with Master at the desert retreat. So they're sitting in the kitchen at the desert retreat. He lifted a paper bag from the floor, set it on the table, and asked that the light be turned off. And just, I love this whole scene. All of a sudden I heard a sound, bzzz, bzzz. Tiny sparks flew into the darkness from some mechanical gadget. The light was turned on and I saw him holding in his hand a little toy pistol. It emitted sparks when the trigger was pulled. <laughs> Next, he took out of the same bag another toy. This, when, this one, when he pulled the trigger, sent a folded piece of cloth or paper into the air. As it came down, it unfolded to become a parachute. I think my favorite line in this whole book is the next one. We watched gravely as it descended to the floor. <laughs> you see the two of them standing there, you know, just watching this whole thing. <laughs> I'm sure Swami laughed too when he found the right word. We watched gravely as it descended to the floor. How do you like it, Walter? How do you like them, Walter? He looked at me as if with special meaning. I was still endeavoring to get over my surprise. Laughingly, I affirmed that they're fine, sir. He looked at me keenly then, and quoting from the Bible said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what a moment. Because, you know, Master had been saying it to him over and over again. I just, you can see Swami's comment that Master bought the toys specifically for him. You can see Master being somewhere and uh, the, what, the way Swami explains to me, explained his own, the way I've observed and the way I understand Swami's own um, decision making, you might want to say, is, is that it's much more, it's, again, it's not calculated. It's just in the moment this seems like a good idea. So whether Master actually picked up the toys with Swami in mind or just knew he needed to buy the toys and, and just responded as he always did to the flow of energy and then realized when he was there that they were for Walter or whether he actually thought to himself, what could I do? You don't really know. But nonetheless, there it was. And for Swamiji, it would, you know, just... He also, in another place I was reading, Swami was talking about the reconciliation he always had to work with between the fact that Master was... Well, this is how Swami put it. He said, it's much easier for us, in a sense, because we never knew Master. So we can... We never knew him embodied. So we can, we can just think of that expanded consciousness and nothing contradicts it. Swamiji said he was there feeling that Master was God himself, but he was also having dinner in the next room, was how Swami would say it. And it was just... It was very confusing for him to try to reconcile all, all these aspects of Master. And that was where, I think, it's in here, it's in the path, where Swami said he was struggling, just struggling so hard to comprehend it. And Master came over and with a sympathetic smile handed him an apple. Just like you poor boy, you're never going to get this straight. Just, you know, just take what I'm giving you. Don't even, you're not, you're not big enough yet to understand this. But also... Here he has all these ideas of who Master's supposed to be and then Master opens a little toy thing like this 
and you get such a, a different Hare Krishna Ghosh um, who was ma uh, Master's brother Sananda's son and uh, so he was Master's nephew and Hare Krishna was 15 in 1936 when Master came to spend a year and a half in India and Sananda uh, when we first started going to India in 1986 and going to Master's house in Calcutta Hare Krishna and his wife Anjali were both still living and they told us many stories and they came to the US once or twice and so many of you also heard them but uh, let me think now where was I oh he, he talked about he talked about Sri Yukteswar coming to visit their house and he talked about how, um, how the children really enjoyed Sri Yukteswar that he, he was very playful and he would tease them a lot and he would I, I have this picture in my mind of like tickling their ears with a feather or something when they were asleep and then having candies in his coat and it was just the children were always delighted when Sri Yukteswar came it was like a wholly different picture than what you have in mind but there's also this uh, childlike freedom that just enables them to just be however they need to be and not, and not have to hold any position at all that's what Swami was trying to... Last week we talked about how Swami said that he was intellectually aloof. And we, we, we spent some time with those words. But you can see if you're intellectual and aloof, you know, you just wouldn't be able to pick up a little toy gun and start shooting it. It would just, it would just break your, your rigidity too much to do it. You have to have a certain something that Swami had to learn you know he just couldn't laugh delightedly when master's shooting the gun he had to watch it gravely descend to the floor <laughs> but childlike is what you've become later yeah it's, it's a very beautiful just a beautiful story any comments or thoughts all right number 260 it's awfully hard to change master Jerry said one day he was that stubborn disciple to whom I alluded earlier. But, he continued, I'll go on to the end of life. Uh, Jerry was a really tough character. I'm not sure. Let me see. Am I correct? Uh, that there, was a, there was one of his disciples that Master said was actually capable of murder. And if it wasn't Jerry, it might have been. He was a very tough person, but nonetheless he was very devoted. So he had a very rough nature. You know, Master, there's no demographic... If you've suffered and you want God, you've suffered and you want God. You can't say who anybody is. But Jerry was a tough guy. That's the spirit, the master replied, approvingly adding. The wave cannot separate itself from the ocean anyway. That's master saying, I'll continue, uh, Jerry saying, I'll continue to the end. The wave cannot separate itself from the ocean anyway. All it can do is protrude farther from the ocean bosom. Its connection to the ocean, however, is eternal. Eventually, it has to go back. It's a wonderful phrase. Jerry stubbornly resisted my every effort to get the monks organized. He left the ashram later, stating, now that things are getting organized, it's ridiculous for me to remain any longer. It's a pleasure for me to be able to report, however, that despite having departed, Jerry, Jerry remained loyal to the end. He kept his promise to the master. That's very sweet because that's not always the case. Jerry had a, a real aversion to Swami. I think it was, 
I, you know, sometimes I get my details wrong, but I think it was Jerry who said to Swami, I don't know why I hate you so much, but I just do. And it was just, and there's Swami, he's 22 years old, and he's getting, you know, telling the monks they have to be here for this, and they have to do here for that. And it was not easy. And a lot of men like Jerry, who just were not cooperative in spirit anyway, and were not really cut out for that kind of a group situation, and was not about to be pushed around by this torpy young guy, who just wasn't, didn't have any of the qualities that Jerry would have respected. Um, it just, it's ridiculous for him to stay, is how he said it. Master had, you know, it was time to move in this direction, but Master had been able to hold all of these people there without any structure, but just out of their loyalty to him. Everybody was directly to Master. And so whatever happened, Master would make the decisions about what their lives would be and on, on both external and internal levels. But it's very dear, as Swami says, because many of those who left were, found it more difficult. But Jerry really had that, regardless of whatever else was going on. He just had that absolute conviction. It's, it's also, when you think about Master being William and having all those people soldiers, I believe he referred to Jerry as also having been a good soldier for him. So you can see how a tough person who really even had a, a physically almost violent streak would be a very good soldier. And when Master needed good soldiers, you know, who else is going to be a good soldier? And it can't have a bunch of poets and singers. You've got to have people who can really take that side of life and really do it. And what a service to Master, what good karma. And you can also see how a, a, a tough guy like that could develop, you know, just absolutely unbreakable loyalty to his commander. Just, there's so many aspects of it that are interesting. Did I say in here what I read? And I read it in a text that wasn't either Swami or Master, but that some of those incarnations that are, seem inexplicable are because the disciples need the experience and the Guru comes with them to help them through it. I mean, you can see a soul needing to become a soldier. It's a very mm, challenging uh, dharma to take up and you can really see how a person could, could develop a tremendous number of very positive qualities. Loyalty, self-sacrifice, discipline, um, in, uh, impersonality about your own well-being. You know, just many, many qualities that really no other environment could test them and maybe you're just really ready to be tested to the limit. So you get to do it with your guru, that's a lot better than just having to do it randomly. Yeah, fascinating. Well, once the master is here, the master is here for the disciples' sake. This was, an, this was an assertion which I really don't fully accept. But it was interesting because the master, an avatar, also has a destiny in the world. Its virtue has declined and uh, vice has dominated, so he has to incarnate. But it was, just a, it was a sweet way to put it, is actually what I would say. Whether it's actually true or not, I don't know. But I'm reminded of Sister Gyanamata writing to master and saying... I know that you came, you know, with this destiny to change the world, but I like to think you came just for me. And it was interesting that it's such an expanded soul because it, it, it's, it is also exactly true. That because he's personal with every one of us, and, and, and equally so. You know, God loves Jesus Christ and Krishna and the worst sinner all exactly the same. That's just an amazing thing to say every week and really contemplate it. 
And when, when we recognize that Master came for us, he did. He really did. He brought this whole thing. Swami came for us just exactly so that we could progress insofar as we are, want to or are able. But it just, you can just grab it and take it and take complete responsibility for it. It's perfectly true. Okay? Say one more time. Yeah, Norman left because you, what you were asking was what Jerry was the one who drove Norman out because Norman really couldn't get along with him. And so he left. And then he said there are, what, five or six other guys where I work that are just like him. Yeah, so that, does, that goes along with my m- recollection that Jerry was a bit of a rough character. But I've seen, I've seen people leave Ananda over one person. And, and pretty much in, throughout the history of Ananda, there's one or two people that everybody has to make peace with before they can stay. You know, in the early years, there was just one person who just... Was very, everybody eventually had a clash with that person and then had to decide whether or not they could still live there. It's just the way it is. It just Because not everybody is... Everybody's working it out. And it's also healthy because then you get to find, what am I loyal to? Am I loyal to this because, oh, it's my family and everybody's so nice? Or am I loyal to it because this is my place and I just have to be loyal to it? And it comes with the turf, you know? I mean, those relationships are not easy. In fact, I, you know, it used to be like, you know, you always had to have one on your crew. <laughs> there had to be one horrible karmic conflict on whatever crew you were on. Then you knew the team was right. <laughs> but then some people would leave over things like that and others would never have considered leaving. It was just a tough, unpleasant cycle, but then you just got through it. Okay? Number 261. Master was having trouble with a certain disciple. He remarked, marveling one day, people are so skillful in their ignorance. Later he said, what a job you take on your hands when you try to help people. You have to go inside their minds and see what they are thinking. A rose looks beautiful when you see it standing in its vase. We tend to forget all the work that went into making it that way. And if it takes so much work to produce a beautiful rose, think how much more work it takes to produce a beautiful human being. What an interesting image. And also Master saying, you know, you take on this job, take on this job, you know, then you have to go inside their mind and understand what they're thinking. And again... It's also, mm, of course that's what you have to do. It's not at all that this is what people are supposed to do. It's you have to go inside the person's mind and figure out what they're thinking. And then try to understand, given who this person is and what's needed, what's going to happen next. I remember at a certain uh, point at Ananda, Swamiji created this whole project and he set it up as a separate department, department and he gave this one woman just complete autonomous control over it, even though the project she was doing really actually belonged under another part of it. And when somebody, in the name of some kind of efficiency, said, well, shouldn't what she be doing be under this department? He says, no, she has to have her own thing. Just as simple as that. She has to be independent, she has to be able to do it herself, and that's that. And it, it worked, you know. She, because of that, she was able to succeed and... It just worked. If she'd had to be put at that stage of her life, 
under any kind of cooperation or worse still, supervision, she could never have made it. You know, he was always able to just see that that's just, that's just exactly what had to happen. And, uh, uh, and that's, where, that's where it got confusing because sometimes you would think that what he was doing didn't make any sense. I remember early on, this was, this was a combination. He, um, he, was an, he was, I think, is the, is the word early adopter or early adapter? But early adopter, I think. Adopter? Yeah, Swami was an early adopter for the products that were relevant. Long before they were worked out, he would be buying them. He was always buying them first. And one of the things, I mean, he had a, he had, was the first to have a computer and, and a printer. I mean, I remember the printer was gigantic. It was, I mean, it was just a humongous thing. Um, but he could, see the, he could see the benefit for him, for the computer, and he just went there and then just upgraded continuously. And it was the same way about computerized systems for writing music. He could see where that was going to go. So, but the very first one was so um, complicated, just beyond. He was ne- it was never able. He was never able to use it. I can't remember what it was called. It had some particular name. But he insisted on buying it. And you know, people around him wanted to do all the necessary research, and Swami just tended to go right over the top. You know, just by intuition, he would just do it. So he got this thing, which was incredibly complicated, which all the naysayers had predicted that he wouldn't be able to deal with it and it all happened exactly as predicted but then he reached out into the community and he pulled this guy in to work on it remember and he worked on it and he was a brilliant man brilliant computer guy and a musician and he just slaved over that thing for many months you know and got it to a modicum of functionality but it never really came to anything. It was thousands of dollars worth of equipment and it was just a whole fizzle. Years later, that man told me he was just about to leave the community. And in fact, keeping him on the path proved difficult in the end, but he was at a very critical juncture when he was really about to make the wrong decision and all of a sudden Swami just picked him up and put him in the, you know, in the front room there and for many months he just... And it turned him for years... Eventually, he, he karma caught him, but for it shifted him for years, and it was like he did it for me. And whether he, whether Swami actually had that man in mind when he bought the machine, I don't think so. But he knew when everybody was telling him this wasn't a good idea, that that just wasn't the point. It's, it's you, you get, you have to evaluate things on it from a different level, even just as a devotee, quite apart from having a a soul with an elevated consciousness confusing the picture, just as a devotee, you have to actually ask yourself very differently, what is success? You know, what is success for me? What is success for other people? What is really trying to happen here? You know, what is the highest value in this situation? Because we we get very external and very external about ourselves. Maybe this goes back to what you were speaking about earlier and... uh... I remember you telling the story before, but just to clarify, do you think Swami was in that particular situation um, buying that machine with the thinking that he would invite this man to help and that way he would be held together or was he just following a thread of intuition and it just turned out the way it turned out? From what I have seen and watched with Swamiji, he was just following an intuition. He, um, you, you know, plan, uh, planning things to work out in a certain way is a different part of the mind. 
than just feeling that this is the right thing to do and acting with complete trust. In another circumstance, Swami made some comment about, these were his words, he said, it's easier for, there were two people involved, and he said, it's easier for me than it is for so-and-so, because I'm quite accustomed to just following my heart, is how he put it. And he's definitely accustomed to just, if this feels right, I'll just do it, without having to have any understanding of where it's going. He just, if this is right, then he knows what is going to come next is right also. And I'm, I would say in that situation, that was exactly what was happening. But it was, he was being used. And he knew he was being used, and so he was content to be used. And he, was, and he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't curious about what was going to happen next. You know, that in the Festival of Light, one of the most interesting phrases to me is, you know, hours passed and night fell. The little bird grew afraid. And he says, how can I fly in this darkness? And it's like, we're perfectly willing to cooperate as long as we can see where we're going. And we get the impression that we're really in the flow of God's will, but we can still see where we're going. And then this other level comes down where we don't have the foggiest idea what's in front of us. How can I fly in this darkness? You know, I've certainly been there. I'm sure many of you have been. And it's not even necessarily that you're suffering is that you just don't know what's happening, but you, you're trapped, you have to go anyway. How can I fly in this darkness? And the darkness said, peace awaits you in the unknown. And you just have to, and then after a time, I love the phrase, after a time, you know, well that means it wasn't eternity, because that's out of time, but you know, how much of time? After a time, and then by this point we call him the tiny rebel, Jeez, I just all those phrases, I delight in them. The tiny rebel. He always looks to me like one of those cartoon birds, you know, tweet, 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 tweet. A little cartoon bird, the tiny rebel surrenders. And that's what it is. We just surrender to the fact that I don't know what's going on here, but I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. And so Swami just was always like that. When, oh, well, it is a moment, and it's, it's fascinating to watch it. It's really fascinating to watch it. When we did the, one of the little political things we did up there, and Swami just, you know, by the end of it, it unfolded just step by step perfectly. And I was totally just flying blind. I never had a clue. What do you want me to do today? Go get signatures, write a letter. I mean, actually, literally, write a letter to the county council. Write a letter to the board of supervisors about the county council. This was one of our conversations. How nasty, I said to Swami. (laughs) Swami says, medium nasty. I said, okay. So I wrote a medium nasty letter, you know. How nasty, super nasty, okay. And I just just did whatever he asked me to do, just for the fun of it, really. And uh, it just worked. It just, but it was very, it, it sailed just so. At the end, I said, did you know? He said, well, I'm not surprised, is how he put it. He said, no, but I just, took it and you know it would be it would be obvious step by step this was the right thing now so we'll just go ahead and do it all right let's take a few minutes break and then we'll see so now we're at number 262 an older woman who had read a great number of metaphysical writings once said to me walter the soul may be destroyed if after it fails repeatedly to attain enlightenment God decides that its case is hopeless. In such a case, the soul simply ceases to exist. During my early years on the path, it was my karmic burden to be plagued by self-doubt. 
I had done uh, no metaphysical reading, having come to the Master in utter ignorance of this field. The first book I read, Autobiography of a Yogi, led me straight to him. I was therefore unarmed against that woman's bleak announcement, which I confess festered in my heart for nearly a year. One day, finally, I summoned up the courage to ask the Master, Is it possible for a soul to be lost forever? Impossible, he declared with absolute certainty. The soul is a part of God. How could any part of him be destroyed? Absurd as it may appear, that reply brought me deep relief, Swami says. Goodness, for a whole year he worried about it. It's amazing, you know, how, um, how Satan finds a crack. You know, and then there's also this woman, and this is what Master was dealing with at the beginning. Just people were coming and going, and and he, you know, contrary to our false idea of what he was like, he was not, you know, a big authority that made a big scene about his position at all. He was just a loving friend to everybody, and you had to understand, even if you became his disciple, you had to understand what you had in him because once again you see it wouldn't have accomplished anything for everybody to behave the way they were supposed to behave because here he is and this is what he expects if it wasn't really coming out of their own understanding then he wasn't going to be able to do anything with them anyway he didn't want them to just line up and look obedient he wanted them to genuinely understand so there were a number of people around as Swami talked about who just were, were running their own agenda. There was also another part of it which is, it's hard to picture what it was really like. He had bills to pay and he needed to rent those rooms. He rented the rooms in Mount Washington. I mean, we know that. We, you know, he rented the rooms. He had to get rent because he had to get income from somewhere. As he said, in India, every, the disciples support the guru, but in America, the guru supports the disciples. So if somebody was willing to move in, he, he let them move in. So there were a lot of people moving in and out of Mount Washington of, on many different trajectories. And also, though, slowly, you know, those who were in tune, I was actually thinking about that. I was talking to someone about Ananda, uh, Ananda as a whole, Ananda Village. Um, at a certain point, I think it was for our 20th anniversary, or maybe it was our 25th, something like that, um, and, and it was, no, maybe it was after Swami went to India, but Swami had this idea that um, we would have a Nanda Sangha globally and in every country people would get numbers as they became members, you know. And then Swami emphatically said, and I'm number one in every country, he said. <laughs> but you, we would get, you would get numbers. He was, I think it was after we were in India, so that would have been a lot later, but I'm not sure. So at Ananda village, they, they needed to figure out you know, what everybody's number was. It became sort of fun. I thought it was great fun. Um, they didn't have very good records, and they didn't really know when you became a member, and I think they, they just used what records they had. I came in 1971, in June, and I took Korea in September. So this, partly, this, sometimes they were using Korea dates. Ananda started in like 68, 69, and, you know, many people came and went, but my number ended up being 13, which I, my, my real number was 15, because they put Haridas and Nalini as 14 and 15, and they were actually there when I got there. 
But still, that's really a low number considering how much time had passed and how much population had gone through. Because what they, you know, it was everybody who was still in the story. And that just tells you, my, it was really a a parade. Even though, in a certain sense, Ananda was tremendously stable because what what happened was there was like a a magnet at the center and people came in and if you got to here, you, you basically you never left. But, but a lot of people didn't get that far. A lot of people got to about here and then they would go. But if you got all the way to here, even uh, at a certain point when, I think for the lawsuit, we had to uh, make a list of everybody who'd ever been there. <laughs> and it was actually really interesting because of all the people who'd ever been there and gone, like maybe three or four people who'd actually gotten to here left. I mean, that's a subtle thing when I say that, but almost everyone else who left never really got got in. They just were here. They lived according to their own definition of what they wanted or thought we were doing. But they never actually connected with what was really happening, which always meant Swami. And there was, at a certain point, I remember just saying, look, I mean, it just has to be said. If you connect with him, it works for you. If you don't, it doesn't, which was a rather radical thing to say. But that's what Master's life was like at Mount Washington at the beginning. He did not say, I am the guru and ye shall listen. He just loved people, guided them, did his services, offered his books, and then just waited to see what they would do. So a lot of them came and went. So this woman having a teaching that had nothing to do with Master's teaching and just asserting it without any challenge was not really that unusual. Master had people even relatively close to him who were doing that and then got what they could from him and sailed off again from there. But then Swamiji, um, worrying about it, you know, just thinking, because he said he was plagued by self-doubt, uh, it, it's also, you have to really think about that. Think about all that Swami accomplished. Think about how courageously he read Autobiography of a Yogi and got on the bus and just came. Think about how he writes in, you know, very short order. He was getting up at four in the morning with the essential help of an alarm clock and meditating three hours and then working in the garden and then going home and meditating in the evening and chanting and, you know, all these different things. But he still was worried inside himself that this... You know, self-doubt was his issue. Worried enough that when this nobody said this to him, then it, he, it festered. He had to keep thinking, what if? What if I'm that one? That finally God will just give up on me and just extinguish me. What a picture. I mean, what a horrible prospect. Also, you know, Whenever people ever, and it doesn't happen that much, but whenever anybody tells me a spiritual fact, I've always asked, who said it? It just makes all the difference in the world to me who said it. Because anybody can say anything. And I was actually discussing with someone, and they were proposing to me teachings that I really don't think are true. And the person who said it is like a, uh, how do I put it, kind of a, a, a figure, an obscure figure who doesn't allow himself to be known. He, he publishes, but he doesn't, nobody knows him. I said, I, I just, I don't buy it. Because I have no idea to write something clever 
Anybody can write clever. You can even write it so that it sounds inspiring. But unless you actually can know where it comes from, which is why channeled information, I also always have a little bit of a concern. Because just because somebody is dead doesn't mean that they're really a valid source. And that's all you're getting when somebody is channeling, is that somebody who is dead is talking to you. You might, you, know, you might not even want to have coffee with them if you were in them in the body. It's, it's just, it, it doesn't mean that you can't or that nothing ever comes that way, but it's tricky. So this woman giving this advice, Master Swami himself says elsewhere that, you know, many preposterous things were said to him because Daniel Boone and others had a pretty far out idea, but Swami would always ask, did Master say it? And no matter how preposterous, if Master had said it, he had to at least try to embrace it. But if Master hadn't, at least had the right. So this one, given that that's Swami said how he felt, this one festering, that it, he said, it took me a year to summon up the courage to ask Master. I think the courage required was that what if it was true? Then what would he do? My goodness. We just make ourselves miserable with so much wrong thinking. Oh, sigh. But Master was absolutely emphatic. Okay, that's all that we need to know. Right? <laughs> Dodge that one. All right. <laughs> the, my joke with it is, Master said he'll come a trillion times if one stray brother's left behind. And if that's me, then that's me. That's my version of that one. And I'm really sorry to trouble you, sir. Pardon me? He's going to come, and that's just the way it is. Yeah, if he doesn't want to, he can work on me better sooner. You know, sort of in his hands to save himself all that trouble. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm joking, but this is also something Swami trained us in. You take something that you might actually, it might scare you, and instead you just, you make it humorous. But by making it humorous, it's also a certain act of courage. You know, that's just like, that, that's your fear, is that you will be the, one, the last stray brother and everybody else will just be gone and you'll be the only one out there. So say it out loud and, you know, have the nerve to consider it. And it, it makes it easier. At least I think it makes it easier. Yes. That's so much like that story uh, where the guru has uh, a bunch of disciples and they're going to be, uh, the guru is going to tell them how long it's going to take them to be liberated. And so they go one at a time to him and uh, they get various answers uh, uh, some of the people that think they're really hot stuff, it's going to be just two or three lifetimes. Another one, it's going to be five. And they walk out contentedly. And this other guy who's looked upon as kind of a ne'er-do-well, just sort of a, a hanger-on, goes up and uh, the, the master tells him uh, something like 15,000 lifetimes. And he surprises everybody by um, saying, boy, this, he, he's just ecstatic at this. He's so happy. He couldn't be more pleased with it. He, he, he dances. He can't... He's just in ecstasy, and all the other people are trying to figure out why, because in their mind, he was at the bottom of the totem pole. And the answer was, he could care less about how many lifetimes it was going to be. It was going to happen. And that's what mattered. Oh, and that's all that mattered. So if you're the last one, so what? <laughs> that's fine with me. Whatever is required. It's beyond, it's just beyond me to understand. Master talks about that 
not in this one, we're not going to get to it tonight, but just one or two after this, Master says, you can't reason these things out, better not even think about them. That's certainly how I feel. Sufficient unto the day or the troubles thereof. 263. For 500 million years, the Master said, creation rests in the night of Brahma. Then for another 500 million years, it is manifested again as the day of Brahma. Sir, I interposed, science has found that the earth is already well over 2 billion billion years old. Well, so therefore, how could the whole day and night work? Well, he replied, it's quite possible that the scripture in writing years, oh, this is the one I'm referring to, in years, we're referring to a much longer time period. In the book of Genesis, too, God is described as taking only seven days for the creation. I, Walter, have found that where scripture and spiritual teaching are concerned, it is wise not to be too exacting in one's analysis of them unless the teaching themselves ask one to be so. So, you know, it's a very good point because sometimes you just... Some people get very um, intent about the details and quite concerned about the details. And I've, I've had people be quite annoyed with me when I just shrug my shoulders. Once I asked Swami at the breakfast table some question about Babaji, Swami went very carefully, put his fork down, and looked at me and went... You know, he just shrugged his shoulders, then he picked up his fork and went back to his breakfast. And it was just like, I don't know. Some things you just have to wait. And then he said later, some things you're going to have to wait till you're in the astral world. Anyway, it was, uh, to be too exacting, the date 1700 AD, for example, as the beginning of Dwapara Yuga is an exact date, not a symbolic one. The days and nights of Brahma, however, and the days referred to in Genesis are symbolic. How can one know the difference? Basically, it may be said that spiritual truths, as opposed to literal facts, are directional. Directional is a really important word on our path. Intuition is not achieved by analysis. It flows with the river of time. It is not a frozen sheet of ice. Swami has said in other places, time is the hardest part of prophecy. Because, you know, you can be certain something's going to happen, but to place it in time is what gets really tricky. I mean, he even sort of just said that as like, as a prophet, (laughs) I'll tell you that time is the hardest part of prophecy. Vast time periods cannot be measured specifically even in science. Now, there's an important point to remember, even the scientists don't always know. Swami Sri Yukteswar, though, Though he, um, Swami Sri Teshwar, though he showed the yugas to be directional, placed them also in specific periods of time. In many spiritual teachings, however, the direction is one of consciousness, not of historic fact. A day of Brahma itself is the projection of an idea. A day of Brahma itself is the projection of an idea. It cannot be cut and spliced like a movie film nor measured out exactly for correlation with other discoveries. I mean, even it's really, it's a beautiful idea. I mean, an idea is not a thing, and that's how it all starts. It simply is a thing in itself, appearing out of timelessness rather than being a function of time. Indeed, it is itself the creator of time. 
Imagine how long it took Swami to write that paragraph to get all those ideas out there on something so complicated. Sometimes, I mean, I actually have notes on this. When he was working on the Revelations of Christ book, which um, is a far less linear book than many books he's written. It, uh, I, the way I finally sort of felt it, I felt like there was like a, a line of inspiration that was running down the center of every page and it was pulling ideas around it. Where, you know, the Gita commentary is very, just goes through the Gita, but the Revelations just kind of spins this aura of energy so that you, it's just very, very different. But when, he, when so it was Swami's habit when he would write that he would send the manuscript as he worked on it. And uh, sometimes he would send it in a very rough stage and he would want people to respond to it. Because I work at, worked at home, work at home, on my computer, and because I would always make it a first priority, you know, whenever he would send something, I would almost always stop everything I was doing and read it. So I got, you know, he liked that because otherwise sometimes he would throw it into the abyss and no one would respond. But I would always respond, almost always. So I remember once there was this one chapter and I kind of got into the analysis side and I just said a lot of things about it. And he, he just wrote back, I can't relate to anything that you've written. <laughs> He said, there's a certain amount of intuition required here. <laughs> he said, it's just so, everything you've written is so labored. He said, I can't relate to it at all. I mean, you had to, you had to understand even how to respond to him. It was just, and I, unfortunately, I don't have my email, or I can't find it yet. I only have his back to me, but I would be very curious. But I know sometimes I, my brain would, and I would think that's what he wanted. You had, you had to... And then sometimes I'd do that and he would be very happy and he would incorporate what I'd suggested. So you never could tell. It was, it was, always, a, it was always an adventure. But he got real tired on that one. Okay. It is the creator of time. The Master sometimes said to us, therefore, there are many teachings which it is wiser to accept on faith. This is what I... It is in this one. Which it is wiser to accept on faith. You can't know everything... So how can you expect to be able to judge everything? Judgment can only be formed on a basis of actual knowledge. Don't depend too much on reason, for that is where Satan catches you. Intelligence is a tricky guide. To seek the guidance of devotion is much sure and more trustworthy. I was having a conversation not too long ago with someone about Swami, and that person was saying, and, and this is how the conversation finally went. Let me just get to the point, the real point. Which is that because we never had to live with Master, we never have to really deal with any contradictory behavior. You know, it's just all settled. And, and every, whatever happened, it all rolled out and it worked out as it was supposed to work out. So we can feel more confident. I mean, Swami himself said that. You're lucky. Because you didn't have to live through all of that. I mean, many of you have come now, or relatively now, and so Swami's life was more or less in order. And you didn't necessarily have to live through as many contradictions as people had to live through when we all started together. And I was just giving that picture of the first years when just nobody knew what was... Swami was just walking around in Bermuda shorts and Hawaiian shirts, just being a really nice person and 
It was just, it was hard to know. Um, but I realized that in, in, in conversation, I realized that I had a core of experience that I never doubted. And I had this core experience which came to me immediately. I, I, it, it wasn't my karma to struggle in certain ways which other people struggle. I had struggled in other ways. That's just the way it worked. But I had this core experience of, of, that persuaded me that he was an extraordinarily spiritual person on, a, on a, an order of magnitude that was way outside me. Outside me. And then, therefore, many things he did that I didn't understand, and I had to learn this response. It wasn't like I always just had it. Nothing he did ever caused me to fundamentally doubt him, because that wasn't my destiny. But I often had no idea what he was doing, and I often thought he was just like, this must be, this is really odd. I just couldn't understand it. But gradually what I realized is, what do I know about what a, a very spiritual person would do? And it just came to me that how, how, how did I, what, on what basis was I evaluating this? This is exactly what he says here. You know, you have to have, judgment can only be formed on the basis of actual knowledge. And it's less of an issue today, you know, in these times than it was over 25 years ago and so on. But so many people made decisions about how Swami should behave and when he contradicted that, they decided that he was wrong. Because if he really was, or they just used it as a basis for doubting his consciousness, because if he had that consciousness, he would behave like this. Do you have that consciousness? How do you know? But it's, it's quite, it's quite um, surprising how often we fall into that without ever realizing, you know, on what basis did I form this judgment? And so we, we always have to watch that. Whenever we're criticizing anything, you have to just ask yourself for a minute, on what basis am I forming this judgment? Do I really have actual knowledge from which I can say that this is how it should be and this is how it was? Anything like that. And so over the years, what I finally got into with Swamiji was he's showing me what it is to have a consciousness like I know he has. Now, of course, I started from always always believing that what I had experienced that was my actual knowledge that what I had experienced I never doubted and therefore if I saw something that looked contrary maybe it was I who had no actual knowledge to understand that but it's a very very whether whatever it applies to just stop and ask yourself and that's very very important in here and let's see what was the context just to Oh, so therefore, when you hear things like a day and a night of Brahma that's contradicted by science, does that mean that the Upanishads are wrong, you know? Or is there something else here that I just don't know yet? And can I really just sort of wait and see? And this is where he says again, spiritual teaching cannot be analyzed to be understood. You just, it, this is the way it's going. And then there's things that you just don't know, like am I asking Swami the question, him just going like this? When I see people who have just started out on the spiritual path and perhaps their families are not really confident and they challenge them and then this poor, you know, this poor soul who barely knows anything themselves and suddenly they're supposed to try to explain it all and my advice always is don't even try 
And if someone says, well, that, that teaching sounds really crazy to me, just say honestly, you know, it doesn't sound very sensible to me either. <laughs> you know, I just don't know yet. We'll have to see, won't we? Perhaps you're right. I'll keep that in mind. You know, just, yes, it's right. I don't really know. Instead of trying to sort of have all this authority, but that also works in every aspect of the path. Gee, days and nights of Brahma, what do I know about that? What do, I mean, really, what do I know about that? I don't know anything about it. So if it's goofy, I'll just put it on the shelf. And I'll just shrug my shoulders and then someday we'll find out, won't we? Some things remain a mystery until later. <laughs> All right, any questions or thoughts or comments? Okay, thank you all very much. Great fun. Well, we went from, we started at... 258, and we went all the way to 263. We just ran through the book tonight.